You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Um, if, uh, if you're staying in here, um, grab your Bible, open it up to James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right near you in the pew there. Um, take it. We want you to, uh, to have God's Word open in your lap. Uh, I have nothing for you. Um, I come um, looking to God's Word. What does God have to say? And so um, if you don't have a Bible of your own or one that you can easily read, take this one. We want you to have it. It's our gift to you. Um, we, we've got more ready to take its place. Um, we want you to, to take that home uh, if, uh, if you are in need of a Bible. So James chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 7 to 11. And uh, you'll see uh, those first words there, have patience, be patient. Probably, I think, two of the most frustrating words in the human language, aren't they? Um, especially when they come at just the wrong time in the wrong place, and, and they only ever seem to come uh, at just the wrong time in just the wrong place. Um, when do you hear those words? You hear that um, when you're frustrated, when you're losing patience in someone so much so that it's evident from the outside, and, and some loving soul will come along and say, hey, be patient. Um, problem is now I'm not only impatient with my circumstances, now I'm also impatient with you. Um, I, I don't have patience. Right? It, it, it doesn't actually help. And, it, and it's, like, it's like telling a starving person, hey, get, get some food. Or telling a, a new mom with a young baby, hey, you should really get more sleep. Like, thanks, I agree, but help. Um, what are you going to do about it? Um, typically today we get impatient. What, waiting for our morning coffee to brew? Trying to get out of the house when your wife takes way longer to get ready than she should. Or maybe your husband still hasn't done that job around the house that you asked him to do a week ago. Um, We get impatient in traffic. We get impatient with noisy or disobedient children. Um, All kinds of things that test our patience. And I, I kid you not, I was right here in writing this introduction when I realized it was way past lunchtime and I didn't have breakfast. So I headed upstairs for some lunch. And I wanted a hard-boiled egg on my salad. Do you have any idea how long water takes to boil? It's like two hours. I threw some eggs in, and you're supposed to bring them to a boil and then uh, start a timer for eight minutes. And uh, so, you know, the, the bubbles start to form on the bottom on the eggs. And I, and I said to my wife, I could probably start the timer now, right? She knows I hate undercooked eggs, so she just kind of responded, only if you want them runny. A few minutes later, you get the little streams of bubbles going, like, we're close. I could probably start it now, right? And uh, after I had just written all of this, she looked at me and said, be patient. I just want to eat. I just want lunch. We get impatient over some of the simplest of things. And uh, this past year has introduced some new things that we can all join together in, in being impatient about, isn't it? Um, Anyone else somewhat impatient with COVID and health restrictions, getting a little tired of this? Um, Well, good news. Uh, James says, be patient. Thanks, James. Um, But the beautiful thing, he he, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just kind of pat us on the head and say, hey, be patient. 
He's not just telling us how to be patient, or not just telling us to be patient, but how to be patient. He gives us theologically rich and practically applicable advice. How many times have we, have we joked about that prayer? Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. Well, here it is. Here is how to be patient. And I think the best way to, to break this verse down um, is to look at what James is calling us to do um, with regards to the future and the present and the past. So that's kind of the, the, the path we're going to be walking this morning. Um, the key to patience is to rest in the future judgment and to be resisting present sin and then to be remembering past examples. So let me read this passage and, uh, and then we'll, we'll walk through it. James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Would you pray with me? Father, you know our impatient hearts. You know our need to grow in this. You know how uh, this year has stretched us and pressed us. Lord, we're tired, we're frustrated, and we've become impatient in many ways. Some over COVID and all that surrounds that, but Lord, there's a million things that stress us, that make us weary of this world, injustice and suffering. Lord, it is so easy for us to get impatient. Would you open our eyes this morning? God, would you teach us patience? Would you soften our hearts and help us to see um, the nearness of the coming of the Lord? Lord, that we might grow, that we may have our hearts set on that. Um, Father, that it would be said of us that we are a people of deep and abiding patience as we wait for you through all things. I do it um, for the glory of your name on display in your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that James says about how we are to be patient, verses 7 and 8, that we're to be patient resting in future judgment. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The the coming of the Lord um, speaks of the second coming of Christ. And, and reminds them that the wicked will be judged. Uh, I'm going to make kind of two points under this first point, kind of an A and a B. This is the first one. Um, we can rest in the future judgment because the wicked will be judged. The wicked will be judged. The word therefore, at the start of verse 7, um, you say that whenever you see a therefore, you, you need to figure out what it's there for. He's, he's, he's pointing our attention back, right? He's, he's linking this to the past verses and drawing our eyes back up to those first six verses of the chapter, um, this harsh warning against the wicked wealthy. He speaks to those who were hoarding wealth, those who were defrauding the poor, who were living in luxury in this world, um, oppressing the weak, 
And that was not theoretical, right? That was reality in their day. The church was often one of the main targets of that defrauding and that oppression and attack. Remember, James is writing this to Jews who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, and most of them would have been scattered because they ran. They fled out of Jerusalem. They fled because of persecution. We see this as you, as you go through the early days of the church. The book of Acts, um, Acts 7, tells us how Stephen is, is killed publicly after false witnesses were trumped up against him. Um, the beginning of, verse, of chapter 8, then, it says um, that Saul, who was an influential, would have been powerful, significant, wealthy person in the culture in, that, in, in Jerusalem, um, it says that Saul approved of his execution And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Acts 12, a little bit later, we're told that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. So that's not this James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He killed the other James. Uh, Killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, uh, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Shortly after this was written, um, this James, James the brother of Jesus, was taken up to the height of the temple and thrown down and stoned. So, So that's what's happening in their hometown. That's what they've fled from, scattered across Asia Minor now. And we know from history that it was just getting started. This was just the beginning. In God's providence, he's, he's giving them this letter um, just as more intense and increasing persecution is about to hit. Two years after the death of James, um, Nero Caesar would um, bring in some of the, the bloodiest persecution the church would ever see. Christians killed en masse, um, sewn into animal skins and thrown to packs of dogs or lions, crucified, um, put on poles and covered in tar and lit on fire to, to light Nero's garden. Uh, it was brutal and gruesome. And in the face of all of that, James says, the Holy Spirit through James says, patience. Be patient. I have a hard time waiting for my eggs to cook. He's asking them to be patient. He's asking us to be patient in the face of massive injustice. Murder. This is not just a hollow call to be patient again. It's not just a a pat on the head. He he gives this foundation for us to rest in the the, the future judgment. So as we look back at those threats against the wicked wealthy, there are also promises for the oppressed, right? The wicked wealthy are going to face God's wrath. 5 verse 1 tells them that they ought to weep and howl because of the misery that is coming upon them. Verse 3 says that the the corrosion of the wealth that they had hoarded will be evidence against them and will eat their flesh like fire. That's a threat of the the fire of hell. Verse 4 says that the Lord of hosts, the God of vast armies of angels, hears the cry of the oppressed. The God who is infinitely greater and stronger than these wealthy, wicked people. Who is not corrupted by their power, their bribes, is not deceived by their lies. And he has heard the cry of the oppressed. He will bring justice. And so verse 5 
says that these people have fattened their hearts for the day of slaughter. Be patient because God will judge the wicked. God will bring justice at the coming of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 paints this picture of, of the coming of the Lord. This is what it will be like since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what the second coming of Christ will look like. It will be a time of judgment. We're so eager for for justice here and now in this world. And that's a right longing. That's a good thing to be after. Um, We long to see wrongs made right. That's, we should. We cry out against wicked governments. We push back against evil people. We lobby and fight against unjust laws. Um, We want fair outcomes in all kinds of situations. And yet... We have to recognize we live in this broken, sinful world, a world in which Satan himself has been granted a certain amount of of dominion and freedom, a world that's not only corrupted by sin, but by and large is ruled by sinful people. And so what else should we expect? It should not surprise us in any way to see the wickedness in this world go from bad to worse, to increase injustice around us, And yet we are to face it with patience because judgment is coming. Because the Lord will make it right in his time. Psalm 2, David says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Kings of this earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. Listen to how God responds. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's not threatened. Verse 9, he says to that king, to Jesus, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So in light of that truth, Paul writes in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are patient and calm and at peace under affliction, under suffering. We can turn the other cheek in the face of injustice against us. We can be that, that righteous man that, that Jesus, or sorry, that James spoke of back in verse 6, who is, who's condemned and even murdered and does not resist, not, not in weakness, not out of cowardice, not, in, not ignoring justice and pretending like everything is okay, not pretending like this is just all right, but patiently trusting, confidently trusting in the justice of God. Now, That's the first half of our hope in the the coming judgment. Um, We tend to think of of judgment kind of one direction, um, the the wrath of God, and, and, and yet there's two sides to judgment. There are also those who will be judged innocent. We have 
patience, resting in this future judgment, the coming of the Lord, not only because the wicked will be judged in a negative way, but also because the righteous will be rewarded. Those who are faithful will find blessing on the day of judgment. So look at verses 7 and 8 and, and see um, how Paul or James kind of pivots here. First he says, be patient therefore, pointing back up to the, the wrath of God against the wicked. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the later rains. You also be patient Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is not just judgment against the wicked. It's also reward for the righteous. It will be a a time of harvest for those who have trusted in Jesus. Those who who fall into this category that James kind of worked out for us so clearly back in chapter 4, who have humbled themselves before the Lord who will submit themselves to him, who, who, who don't make the things of this world their ultimate goal, but have set their hearts on seeking him. They can be patient through trial, through hardship, through suffering, through being mistreated and oppressed in this world. The same way the fa- farmer can endure the long growing season. The seed in the ground um, works hard, plows, tills, plants the seed, and then what? Waits. He just waits. He waits. In in Israel, they have two rainy seasons, one in the fall and one in the spring. Um, And and there will be no harvest until the right season, until the rains have passed. And there's just nothing he can do to rush it or change it. And so he patiently waits. Why? More to the point, how? How does he have patience? Well, he does it by resting in the fact that, that the end is is in the right season, the right time will come when the crop has reached maturity and his reward will be this great harvest. There's There's a reward, there's a goal that he's seeking after. And so he works up his patience, he he strengthens, he he fortifies his heart against impatience by setting his focus, his his hope, his anticipation on that harvest that will come in its proper time. We get so focused on wanting um, justice here and now. We want to be vindicated. We want to be proven right in this world. And, and it's like the farmer taking his combine out into the field in the spring. Like weeks after planting, he's, he's plowing over those little green shoots that are popping up, destroying his own harvest. No, no, we need to be like the patient farmer who waits for it knowing there's a, there's a reward coming in due time when the harvest is ready. And notice what's happening in that time, that time of waiting, that time of patience as the early and the late rains come and go, the farmer waits and the crop grows. It increases, right? So Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus says this, Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This waiting, this trial and persecution and sufferings pile up and our reward grows. 
This is what's going through Paul's mind as he faced beatings and stonings and imprisonment and hunger and famine and nakedness and sword. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he writes, for this light and momentary affliction. Man, Paul's perspective was a little shifted, wasn't it? Would I say my light and momentary affliction in the face of all that? But Paul does. He says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. It's so much better. The more I suffer here as I, as I remain faithful and undergo this, this time of waiting, the more my reward increases in glory. So we set our eyes on that future reward, confident that it will come, trusting in the Lord's timing. You'll notice um, verse 7 builds this this patience because the Lord is coming. Um, down in verse 8, he adds, the Lord's coming is at hand. The nearness of the coming. Now, what does he mean by that? In, in what way is, is the coming of the Lord at hand? Remember, James wrote this like 2,000 years ago, right? And so way back then, he said, the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Christ is close. Well, that word there, the Greek word, is a, is a pretty standard word. It means to draw near, to come close. It, it can be used uh, either spatially, to come near physically in space, or temporally, that, 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 that it's close in time. Um, but as it's used here and, and other places in the New Testament, speaking of the return of Christ, um, I think we could say he uses it eschatologically. Uh, he uses it in, a, in a, a unique way as they talk about the return of Christ. Not necessarily that it's close in time. Um, this verse is just as true now as it was 2,000 years ago. But that this is the next thing on God's calendar, right? In the great sequence of events, God's plan of, of redemptive history, um, there was the, the creation and then the fall and then the exodus and the giving of the law. There was the, the coming of Christ, the, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the next thing in line, the last thing on, on God's great calendar in this world is the return of Christ, the final judgment. It's near. There's nothing else between then and now. Nothing stands in, in God's way. There's nothing left that he has to do. The coming of Jesus is at hand. Or as he says down in verse 9, he is standing at the door. This is why Jesus says the end will come like a thief in the night. No one knows how long this period will be. No one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' coming. But we do know that, that these are the last days, that, that that's what's next. That's what's coming. The coming of the Lord is near. And when he comes, he will bring perfect judgment on the wicked and he will bring full reward for those who have trusted him. And so we have this patience. We have this confidence. We, we can establish and fortify our hearts against discouragement, against anxiety, against fear, resting in that future judgment. Knowing that one day all things will be made right. The wickedness of this world will be, will be punished. The suffering of the, those who have endured and trusting in Christ will be rewarded. And so we look forward, we rest in this future judgment, holding on to that. Secondly, James points out the present. What about now? We're, we're looking forward, we're eagerly awaiting that great day, but what do we do today? 
And I think he says we ought to be patient while resisting present sin. Resisting present sin. Look at verse 9. He says the, the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's, it's near. And, and then he turns to correction of them. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You have a bad day. Maybe you get some bad news at work or you uh, felt overworked and unappreciated and uh, a huge new project dropped in your lap. You have no idea how you're going to do this and you're just feeling rotten and you come home. What happens? We tend to take that stress and that pressure out uh, on those we love the most, don't we? And I think it can be a danger in the church, the same thing. So we face persecution and, and trials when there's, when there's pressure and stress the world around us. We're, we are prone to lash out at those closest to us. To add to that, the difficult times give us plenty to disagree on. How should we respond? When should we speak or be silent? What should be said? Where do we draw the lines? What does is, what is proper obedience look like? When oppression and hardship and worldly suffering hit, um, we tend to very easily become like Israel in the wilderness. We grumble. We, we, we sadly, we, we throw aside the unity of the church that, that Scripture so values and calls us to so frequently, and we grumble. We complain to one another, and we complain about one another. And so James says, when you face injustice... When your rights are being trampled, when your life is being turned upside down by hardship and suffering, as tempted as it might be to, to be looking out there, what are all the problems out there and the other people and, and the other injustice around? The real need is for us to take a moment and look in here. Deal with the sin inside of us. Being patient in suffering is about taking this opportunity to grow in holiness. And this isn't just about grumbling, is it? If you remember from chapter 3, as James talked about the tongue and how uh, if anyone can control the tongue, he's a perfect man, right? The, the, the words become kind of this category, this, this marker of, of all kinds of sin. And he talked about how the, the tongue or the words that come from our mouth are like water from a fountain or the fruit from a tree. They show what's inside of us. It's Jesus' warning. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the, the problem is not just grumbling. It's sin in our hearts. And it may not show up in grumbling in you, but in other ways. This is about sin of any kind. Times of trial are gifts of grace to us if they help us uncover and deal with sin in our own lives. That happens partly as we recognize that the judge is standing at the door. So often we think about God's judgment and, and, and we see it as a, a distant, far-off possibility. It's this kind of vague thing maybe on the horizon. Remember being a kid, maybe a teenager, you were left at home alone? And when, you're, when your parents first leave, um, it's party time, right? Like break out the ice cream, you know, you put on some movies that you're not allowed to watch, um, you don't clean up after yourself, you stay up too late, you have this great 
time, um, free and easy, not a care in the world. And what happens when your parents call and say, hey, we're on our way home? Oh, no. They're on their way. I need, to, I need to fix this. I need to hide the evidence of the ice cream. I need to um, start cleaning things up. And, and if you're like me and you grew up in the country, there was that extra grace period when you saw the lights turn down the lane and you knew now it's go time. Now I need to get to my room, turn off the lights, pretend like I've been sleeping peacefully for hours. Um, but they're coming. We know all of a sudden that the attitude shifts because judgment is near. It's coming. James says the judge is standing at the door. How would our lives change? How would your life look different if we had a a real sense that Jesus was standing at the door, about to break in? Don't live as if he's never coming back. Don't live as if judgment is this kind of far-off, vague thing on the horizon. But as if Jesus were standing at the door, because he is. It's near. And when he comes, we all will be judged in the sense we will all be assessed. We will all be put before the judgment of the Lord. And in one sense, we will be judged based on our works based on the evidence in our lives. And we want to, we want to deal with this carefully, but, but listen closely. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is coming with His angels in glory, the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to the works that He has done. According to works. Romans 2, 6. Very similar. He, that's Jesus on the day of judgment, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, John, but I thought we were saved by grace alone through faith alone, not by works. I thought this was about Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins so that, so that we're no longer judged on that basis. Yes, absolutely. We are saved by grace, God's loving kindness, in spite of all of the wicked that we have done. Praise be to God, the most filthy and vile are called to come to him in repentance and faith to receive complete forgiveness. But remember the theme of James. Remember what he's been unpacking for them. That not all those who just say the name of Christ, not all those who just claim to have faith are truly followers of Christ, are truly believers, don't have authentic faith necessarily. That that true saving faith shows itself in a transformed life. Anyone who's truly been granted the grace of God who has been brought from from death to life lives then in that new life. There's, There's evidence. And so... A life of obedience does not earn you a place in heaven. You would, you would, that's an impossibility. Even our best days of obedience are so stained with sin. But rather that obedience, that heart that is turned toward the Lord, as, as Paul describes, as, as patience in well-doing, seeking for glory and honor, that's evidence of that regenerative work of Christ. That's the the outflow of true faith. And so uh, we're saved by grace through faith. 
And yet at the same time, our lives ought to put that on display. Are you truly a child of God resting in the hope of that future judgment, eagerly anticipating that reward, then we ought to live like it. And the person who goes on in in careless and continual sin without repentance, he's not truly looking forward to that judgment, is he? We ought to use this time Authentic faith will will take this season, this time of of waiting for the coming of the Lord, not as a time to continue to sin, right? Not as a time to, I can can keep rebelling and doing whatever I want because Jesus hasn't come back yet, but rather saying, how can I grow? How can I rid myself of sin? How can I increase in holiness? Time of preparing for his coming. That's how we use this time. Well, that's what our, our primary focus ought to be in this season, in this, this middle time as we await that coming. Um, we ought to not simply be focused on that coming judgment, but what does that mean today and how do I grow? How do I live in increasing holiness here and now? Don't think, oh, I'll deal with that sin later. The judge is standing at the door. The anticipation of his coming ought to motivate us to, to purity. And so be patient, resting in that future judgment. Be patient, resisting the present sin. And then finally, um, he says, be patient, remembering the past examples. How do we trust God through trials? How do we work up patience in our life when, when things are hard? By looking back at what God has done in the past. Look at verses uh, 10 In 11, James writes, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we looked at the Examples of the past. Now, you note takers, I'm going to do another A and B here. So, um, subheading. Um, we're looking first to the, the prophets. Those who spoke in the name of the Lord. He, he doesn't say if he's thinking about any prophets in particular, but, but almost all of the prophets underwent persecution and suffering. And they show um, the, their, their faithfulness to the Lord and the kings of Israel uh, as they grew more corrupt. The suffering and the, the, of these faithful prophets increased. And we see their, their example in that. Jeremiah was one of the last prophets uh, in the nation of Judah. He was mocked and antagonized. He was never able to marry or have children. He was beaten. He was locked in the stocks. He narrowly escaped a, a mob that demanded his death. During the reign of King Jehoiakim, uh, he was accused of being a traitor for, for speaking of God's coming justice against the, uh, the wicked nation, the increasingly wicked nation. And he was thrown into a, a dried up well, left there. He was only ever brought out to, to then be carried away to Egypt against his will. The reality of suffering uh, was almost built into uh, what it meant to be a prophet. Most of them, Live hard lives, opposed by the king, 
opposed by those in power, not having a worldly comfort or prestige or peace. And yet, James, speaking to his Jewish audience, remember, he says, we considered them blessed for their steadfastness, right? James's first readers would have, would have grown up on stories of the prophets. They, they didn't have Marvel movies or comic books. They didn't have superheroes. They had this. They had the prophets. Those were their heroes, and they, and they counted them as such. And, and then James points out, it's kind of inconsistent, isn't it? That you looked up to the prophets, that you counted them as blessed. But then you're shocked and appalled when, when your life is touched by hardship. Shouldn't you be ready for that? Shouldn't you have been looking at their example and expecting to follow in it, hoping to follow in it? There are many today who, who would make the claim that, that following Christ um, is this promise to just make your life smooth and easy. It'll be great. Just follow Jesus and everything will be beautiful. Right? The, the prosperity preachers are an easy target, but it's much more insidious than that. It's all over the place. It's a fairly common message in North America. Jesus will be the, the cherry on top of your life. He'll be the, the grease in the cogs. He'll be the butter on the bread. This will be, be wonderful. Just follow Jesus and everything will be great. Listen to what Jesus said. Luke 9, starting verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, modern day evangelist says, great. Pray this prayer, write it down, mark the date, you're in, everything's fine. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. I have, I have other worldly things that I need to, to deal with to manage my, my father's estate and figure this out. And then I'll come follow you. Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, this is going to be rough. This is going to be hard. There will be nowhere to hide, nowhere to rest. You won't have comfort in this world. You won't be at home here anymore. There will be great sacrifices. It will be like the backbreaking work of, of plowing a field. Remember, he's not talking about jumping in the tractor. He's talking about putting two hands on that steel plow as it's pulled by an ox and grinding it through the rocky soil. He's talking about hard work. That's what we ought to expect. So who are our heroes? Sure, they, we, we have the prophets as well who look back in our spiritual lineage, but we have added to that now with, with Jesus and the apostles. How did their lives go? Well, Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was scourged with whips until his back was bloodied and raw and then tied rather than nailed to the cross so that he would live longer. And he spent two days on that cross before he died. John was exiled to the island of Patmos and left there to rot. We already read about James, the brother of John, killed by the sword by Herod. Tradition tells us Bartholomew was skinned alive and then beheaded and on and on it goes. 
These are the ones who went before us. These are our heroes that we say, that's who I want to be like. Do we mean it? Do we know what that entails? You thought this world would love you. You thought the world would be your home, that it would be comfortable here, that we would just kind of add Jesus as a cherry on top and and walk down the garden path to heaven. Jesus never promised that. Christians have had it very good in North America for the last few hundred years. The Puritans came here for that reason, escaping persecution, looking for a land where they could worship freely. But this season that we've experienced is not normal in Christian history. It is a strange, strange thing that we live in where our faith has been just considered normal. Even, even society in general not too long ago would have said, and, and I think many still today, that Christianity is just generally a good thing. Um, Christopher Hitchens, that, that was kind of his, his shtick, was asking, is Christianity good for the world? And, and he was kind of seen as a bit of an oddball, a bit of a monster for arguing, no, it's not. That's changing quickly. That's coming crashing down around us. Christianity begins to be demonized a little more. The the ideals and principles of this world are moving further and further away from where they began, uh, from any biblical principle. And that grieves us, and it ought to grieve us. And we should be salt and light trying to hold back, trying to slow that decay. But we should not be shocked. This is what we should have expected. This is what Jesus said. This is what he meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to assume that it will mean your death. And follow me. Because to be a friend of Jesus in this world is to be an enemy of the world. 1 Peter 4.12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised as the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's the normal experience of the Christian. i am just throw this out there. I think wearing masks and social distancing when the rest of the world is doing the exact same thing, it doesn't even make the radar of suffering. It doesn't make the radar of persecution. These are small things. We should expect friends to disown us. We should expect laws to come against us. They already have. We should expect our employers to pressure us, even fire us unjustly because of our faith. We should expect that our faith will make us outsiders in this world, will make us even targets in this world. The day may come that that it is illegal for, for someone to be a Christian, to own a Bible, to speak like we're doing right now? Are we ready for that? Do we we expect that or will it be a shock to us? We should live with some expectation that there's there's a reasonable possibility that I will die a martyr's death and endure it with patience, remembering the past knowing that we're we're standing firmly in the road that was walked by the prophets and by our Lord and by the apostles who walked after him. Looking back, we see the the suffering of those who have gone before us, but also looking back, we see the faithfulness of God. 
We see the faithfulness of God. James then points us to Job and the example of Job. Job had everything taken away. He went from from riches to nothing. Job chapter 1 says that he was the greatest man in all the East. He was so incredibly wealthy uh, until raiders came and killed his oxen and his donkeys, his sheep and his camels and his servants. It's all of his agricultural wealth. On the same day, the house in which his children had gathered for a celebration was hit by a strong wind and collapsed and killed all of them. Shortly after, Job even lost his own health. His body was covered by painful, oozing sores from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Job sat on the heap of rubble that was once his house, which killed his children, scraping the ooze and scabs off his sores with a piece of pottery. The heart of God, the character of God is implicitly drawn into question. How could this happen? Job was a righteous man. Job Job honored the Lord. Why is he suffering? Is this okay? James wants us to remember Job, to look at his suffering, I think to maybe compare it to our own, so that we might learn how to suffer well. How to be patient in the middle of trial by remembering how God then dealt with Job. What is Job's response? How does does Job suffer? All of this comes into his life and we see this remarkable trust in the Lord. For sure, he wrestled with God. He asked God some hard questions, but he never sinned. And right from the beginning, Job 1, 20 to 21. This is Job's first response after his massive loss. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Can you imagine? That'd be your first response. And he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. That's faith. That's patience in the face of suffering. Job 13, 15, uh, Job goes so far as to say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I trust God. Even if he kills me, I trust him. Job never turned his back on the Lord. He never rejected the Lord because his life was hard. And in the end, Job 42, 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He was already the richest man in the East, and he ended with double that. But I think that's actually a side note. I don't think that's the climax of the book of Job. I think the high point of the book of Job is actually uh, chapter 42, verse 5, where Job says to the Lord, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. I had some idea of who you were, but now through this, I see you. The Lord was revealing himself to Job through the suffering. The Lord was drawing Job near to him. So why does James want us to remember Job? Well, he tells us exactly why. Because in Job, we see the purpose of the Lord, the the telos of God, that he has a plan. There's a goal to this and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God doesn't allow these things haphazardly. It's not outside of his control. God has a purpose 
Uh, from the very beginning, this was not random. This was not a shock to God. It's not that he wasn't paying attention or that he isn't trustworthy. God had a purpose, a design from the very beginning. And that purpose was to show that he's compassionate and merciful to those who trust him through suffering. God brought about this glorious good through the suffering of Job and he rewarded him abundantly. So we're to be patient because God is sovereign. God is good. Come what may, he's not forgotten you or forsaken you. He has a purpose in and through every trial, every suffering, every hardship. Like the worship team to come and um, we'll, we'll stand and worship our God in just a moment here. We need to learn to be patient, church. We need to learn to be like Job who, who trusted the Lord through suffering, through darkness. Who will set our hearts to, to rest on that future judgment and who will establish their hearts in resting in sin in this, sorry, resisting sin in this present life. That we take this time now to, to fight against it, to grow, to, to anticipate the coming of the Lord, growing in Christ-likeness and trusting that God will show himself gracious and merciful, that in the end we will be rewarded, injustice will be punished, and we will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. What a great God we have. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Let's stand and sing together.